Welcome to The Think Podcast, the show that tackles impossible questions from a biblical perspective with your host, Joel Sedeckes. And now, get ready to think. Welcome back to The Think Podcast with Joel Sedeckes, starring the Lord Jesus Christ, but also featuring yours truly, Joel Sedeckes. Uh, This is the show that tackles impossible questions from a biblical perspective to help you explain, share, and defend the Christian message. And I'm in an especially lighthearted mood. Let me tell you why. Sometimes we have people on the show. Sometimes I have authors that are very, very smart and with whom I disagree quite a lot. Other times we have atheists who are a lot of talk to you about exhausting, having constantly, constantly pick apart every statement. Uh, other times, rarely, I get to have someone on who is a kindred spirit, who I have my disagreements with, but who I know is uh, very much on the same team, very much in a spirit of conviviality, as they say, and where we just get to have a lot of fun. And that is really what I'm looking forward to today. I've got um, an absolutely brilliant host, uh, sorry, brilliant guest coming on today. And um, you're really really going to enjoy this episode. If you're even remotely interested in Christian apologetics, which if you're watching or listening to the Think Podcast, I have a hunch you probably are. Now, whether you're an accomplished apologist or have no clue what the word apologetics means, you will not want to miss this episode. So here's your situation. You've decided you wanted to get better at standing up for what you believe. You're going to hone your skill at defending your faith and sharing the gospel and you've discovered the world of apologetics. Maybe you don't really know quite what that word means, but you're talking about the discipline of vindicating Christian truth against challenges and objections. You've you've started to get into it, but now you've hit a roadblock because you've discovered, gasp, there are different ways of doing this. See, on the one hand, you've got your classicalists who swear by the Kalam cosmological argument. And on the other hand, You've got evidentialists who do a great job of giving evidence to prove the, quote, case for faith, end quote. But then on the other other hand, that's a famous book, by the way. On the other other hand, you've got presuppositionalist guys like yours truly who don't seem to get along so well with either of those other two groups. So what's going on? Who's right? I thought we're all reading from the same Bible here. And which apologetics method is best? Well, this this episode is going to give you the definitive answer answer. Yes, I said it. We're going to settle this once and for all, or at least we're going to give you some more grist for the mill of your mind as you work out for yourself what school of apologetic thought you want to align yourself with. That's probably more realistic. And that's because today, two Christian apologists are going to have a robust dialogue about methodology, each one of us presenting his own preferred method and interacting with each other. So uh, my guest today is none other than Dean Meadows of the Daily Apologist. Dean, let me bring you on the stream here. All right. Welcome, brother. What's going on, man? That might be the greatest podcast intro that I've ever heard <laughs> in my life. That was that was something else. Well, Dean, I'm just getting started, man, because I have to I have to give your bio here. So, Dean, you serve, correct me if I'm wrong, as the executive director, and you're also the co-founder of the Daily Apologist, which is a 501c3, correct? It is. It is. And you hold your bachelor's in theology from the Bear Valley Bible Institute International and a BS 
in Bible ministry, Bible slash ministry from Amridge University and an MA in Christian apologetics from Biola University. And as if that wasn't enough, you're pursuing an MSc in philosophy from the University of Edinburgh in Scotland. Uh, most of that is true. The last piece of that I had to uh, disenroll for um, some family uh, stuff that was going on. So uh, I am going actually, uh, I'm going to pursue another degree in philosophy here uh, shortly. I haven't uh, yet made up my mind as far as where, where that's going to be. So, okay. Okay. I appreciate, I appreciate it. I probably need to update my bio, huh? <laughs> well, yeah, I mean, shame on me for just getting that from the website, not, not confirming. With uh, it's all good. But uh, you're married to Hillary. Yes. yes. And yes. you have two kids with very pretty names. Well, thank Laura you. Laura Grace and Ren Mercy. Right. So we kind of have this thing where for however many kids the good Lord blesses us with, we're, we're going to name their middle name after an attribute of God. Okay. So you got so, grace, mercy. Yep. Very cool. So our our second born is Anna Sophia, and Anna means grace in Hebrew, and Sophia, of course, is wisdom. So we right. we we um sort of had a, a similar motivation there. Right. So, so cool. very cool. And you are also you are a um a veteran of the Marine Corps Reserve for six years, and you were even deployed to Iraq in two thousand six. Is that right? I was. It feels like uh, it was yesterday, but apparently it's been many moons since then. So. Man. Well, so, thank yeah. you so much for your service, bro. Hey, well, I appreciate that. I appreciate it. Yeah. Yeah. Well, we we uh, appreciate you keeping us free. And um, so we need to dive into this exciting topic. Um, is there, uh, Dean, is there anything in your introduction that I left out that I should, we should mention about you, who, who, who you are and how we can get to know you? Um, I mean, the only thing that if anybody wants to see the content that we have, just go to the dailyapologist.com. And uh, if you want to become a, a, a beginner evidentialist, you can go there. <laughs> Absolutely. Uh, thedailyapologist.com. Look at that. I have a banner ready to go for it. There you go. All right. So we've so. got a lot of people watching and normally I save all the comments till the end, but right. um, this is, uh, this is going to be fun. We've got, uh, okay. Uh, Ethan Michael is here. Uh, he says he wouldn't miss it because it's you. <laughs> Um, he has to occasionally, he has to mute because he's at work. Oh, well, thanks for watching, Ethan. <laughs> I see that Lucas commented, wait, I came for a SmackDown. Oh yeah. Yeah. Let me pull that up. Okay. So Lucas Giolis of Catalyzing Faith, another Christian apologist. I came for a SmackDown, uh, bro. I'm saving the SmackDown for you, man. We're going <laughs> to, I'll have you on again. We'll, we'll debate. We'll do the, there you uh, go. as to who's going to get SmackDown time will tell time will tell, but, uh, uh, Noah de Spain says sup Joel and uh, Noah. Great to have you watching again, man. Thank you. Uh, who else is here? Let's see. Okay. Um, oh, Noah says, you know, you're doing something, you know, you're doing something. He doesn't say you're doing something right. He just says you're doing something <laughs> when you've got the atheist cheering for hashtag dat presup. Yep. And that's because uh, I, I use that, the, uh, the hashtag, which I did not make up dat presup. And uh, Ethan is a big fan of that. Um, all right. So we've got, uh, oh, uh, one more thing. Lucas says that, uh, he just says, Dean the Marine Meadows. That's, dude, that's good. You ever thought there about you taking on that, that 
It, it, well, I always told myself if I ever became a, a WWE wrestler, that would be my my tag my tag line my tag line my name. Yeah, so, yeah, but, that's good. Hey, not going to do that. So okay, all right. Well, we'll we'll keep our eyes open for um, the Daily Wrestler <laughs> That's a, good. That's good. There's a good, good. There's nice. a good combination there. I think that's man. solid. That's solid. So tell us about the Daily Apologist because ever since I. I found out about it. Um, you know, there's, there's so many, there's dailies, right? There's, there's the daily wire, the daily, right. um, signal. There's the daily Tucker Carlson's old thing, the daily, um, daily caller, daily caller. Thank you. Yes. And so you've got the daily apologist. Tell us about that. What's, um, and, and maybe you could wind in to that. Some of your right. backstory as well. Right. So, um, you know, really the genesis of the Daily Apologist comes from a story um, that's actually on the website. Uh, it's about a young lady named Kaylee Cleary who grew up in the church. Um, her parents, that congregation, people around her invested 18 years in her life. She went off to the University of North Carolina, Chapel Hill. Um, she took a, a class called Jesus in Film with Dr. Bart Ehrman, who is the author of Misquoting Jesus, the story of who changed the Bible and why. Insert and eye roll emoji right here. Yeah. There, there you go. <laughs> and so, and so um, she called me up one day uh, in the afternoon. And the way that our relationship worked is I'm kind of like a older brother. So I was the one that was always calling and checking in on her. So if she ever called me, uh, it was a bit peculiar. And on this afternoon at two o'clock, three o'clock, she called me and I knew it was like either a spiritual thing or it was a boy thing and having been in the Marines, you know, I could handle the boy. Uh, and so uh, she said, Hey, I'm in this class. I'm learning all these things about the Bible that I had never been taught. I'd never been exposed to, and I'm having some serious doubts about my faith. And so from there um, we talked, I said, Hey, you know, you've got class Monday, Wednesday, Friday, after every class, let's get together, have a conversation and, and reason through kind of what, Dr. Ehrman's talking about at the time is at Biola, oddly enough, taking the class, um, scripture, canon and authority. So, so yeah, so that was kind of like a, a a God thing that happened there. And at the end of that time, you know, we worked through the stuff. She's still a Christian today. Uh, I thought to myself, you know, not every kid has somebody that's in the Biola program that they can just call up and, and talk to them about these, these issues and there's not nearly enough uh, apologetics um, out there. And so I said, well, what can we do? You know, that kind of, as we survey the landscape of apologetics, what can we do? That's a little bit um, obviously cost effective because it's a startup, but something that can really help young people. And so we're essentially um, a social media based apologetics organization where we provide blogs, podcasts, videos, um, Instagram, Twitter, YouTube stuff for young people that we can give them a, a quick answer for a tough question. And then on the other side of the house, the other pillar of the daily apologist is we provide free online training for anybody that wants to, um, learn apologetics. We just had in January, we launched, uh, the daily apologist online training center, which is at the website. And essentially, you give us an you give an email, you make a password. We we only use that for 
login and to give you a, a monthly newsletter to kind of tell you what's going on behind the scenes. Mm-hmm. And we have Apologetics 101 out right now. And then what's really cool uh, is in April, the 21st to the 23rd, another team member, uh, Aaron Johnson, who's been on Ethan's channel before, is going to do a, a class on the resurrection. And that'll, that should be uh, edited and published, I would say, May, June time. So our, our goal is to make um, 100 of these in the next 10 years so that we can get a good catalog of classes for people to equip themselves to engage culture, which is also uh, our theme, our tagline. So that's essentially a origin story kind of mixed in with with what we do. So That's so, yeah. cool. You know, one of the things I love about Ligonier Ministries, R.C. Sproul's old ministry, is you can go onto their website and you can find teaching clips from the late R.C. Sproul going back to like the 70s and 80s. And so when you said you're going to spend the next 10 years making a, um, making a, uh, a, a, you know, a hundred of these videos, I'm thinking, man, that's going to be a treasured resource for generations. I mean, that has the potential to bless people for, I mean, if you're, it's going to be over 10 years, how cool is that? You know, people in yeah. 2031 going back and going, right. Hey, look at this old classic of, uh, you know, right. of, of Dean and, and the team. I mean, look how, look how young he looks then he didn't have right. all that gray. You know what I mean? And it's, um, well, well, the way I'm going right now, I won't have anything. <laughs> <laughs> so it's me with hair, but, but no, that's essentially what, um, we, we seek to do, we understand that, uh, the daily apologist is not just about one person or any group of, of people. It's about, uh, magnifying and glorifying the, the truth of scripture. And that, uh, we want to provide a resource that, um, is tangible and accessible for, uh, however long the, the Lord allows not only us to live, but for our, our ministry to, to be around. So right on, man. And so, Okay. So you've got, it's, it isn't just you, you mentioned it's not just about one guy. Right. Um, in, in your bio on the website, it says you're the co-founder. Right. Who, who's your other co-founder? So there were, there are three of us at the time that co-founded the daily apologist. One okay. uh, was a gentleman by the name of Jack Lipsy. Uh, Jack Lipsy now preaches in Moxville, uh, North Carolina. He took a full-time job there. And then the other one was Brian Cunningham and Brian Cunningham, uh, is actually a former kicker for the Alabama Crimson Tide uh, back in the the low years in the like the mid nineties. Okay, and so he was doing college ministry, and then he decided to go. I believe he's in Mississippi right now, preaching full time there. So um, they still have uh, resources that they've contributed to, but they are no longer like uh, fully active in in the ministry because they've decided that. Uh, they want to go and they just want to preach the gospel to to people and and uh, you know God bless them for that. That's uh, amazing things that they're doing in their yeah. respective ministries. But I'm thankful for them because without them, um, this ministry wouldn't have even been uh, possible. And their contribution, obviously, like their blogs and their podcasts, um, are still resources that people are going to read for for generations to come. Mm. So I'm grateful for those two guys. Love that, man. Love that. So, all right. So let's get into apologetical methods. Now, I think you know the reason why I um, invited you on or why why I reached out to you originally. Right. Do, you, do you remember what it was? Because I talked smack about you way back when. That's right. That's right. <laughs> so it was on, I think it was on, um, 
Ethan's channel. There was a, a video, I think it was with John Anthony, because I was watching right. John Anthony's video to do research for the debate that he and I had. Is that right? Was it was it with John Anthony? Yeah, yeah that was right. Because yes. you 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 uh, messaged me randomly at some yes. point. I think it was in like September, and you're like, "I'm coming for you." And I'm like, <laughs> "What did right. I say to upset Joel?" Like, that's I don't right. even that's know what right. I said because I think I remember I asked you the message. Like, okay, what what did I say? <laughs> what did I do? And you said I said something about uh, presuppositionalism. I'm like, ah, there it is. Yes, and so. I, yeah. I guess that's what the Lord means when he says your sins will find you out, right? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it was, uh, yeah, everything, everything that's hidden will be brought to the light. Um, but yeah, so I'm watching this video because I'm, I'm preparing for this uh, debate that I was going to have with, with atheist John Anthony. And, um, uh, and, and I'm, I'm watching and you guys are talking about different approaches to, to apologetics. And you had said something about uh, presuppositionalism and I'm, I'm, I'm always the uh, the uh, the whipping boy when it comes to presup. When everyone someone's got a problem with presup, they go, "Oh well, you know, Joel Sedicase might differ with this." But uh, but then you're like, "Well, I hope you know, I'm I'm gonna I'm gonna say, you know, I, I don't think it's the best approach, and and hopefully uh, Joel won't come and get me or something like that." So I'm like, "Oh, now I gotta now I gotta." Get him. <laughs> but um, yeah. all in all in good fun, of course. Obviously, yeah, fun. I would I would never disparage you to to anybody. So. Well, right, right back at you, brother. Right back at you. So why don't we just, so for those who don't know, and, and this is just by way of brief introduction in the world of apologetics, there are different approaches, different schools of thought. Think about it. Like in the old days, there were Macs and PCs. I probably still are today. If anybody still uses personal desktop computers, um, you know, uh, I'm using a laptop right now. But you know, oh, but nowadays you might say, okay, there are Macs and there are Android devices. I mean, uh, Apples and, and Androids, right? Different operating systems. Now, within the operating system, you've got different apps, different programs. But the operating system is going to define which apps you have access to, even if you have the same app um, on. A different operating, a different OS, the app is going to be a little bit different. And um, so in the world of apologetics, there's sort of a similar situation. You've got different operating systems. And um, although people say, you know, I, I like to use them all, uh, in the end, you're going to have one foundation or the other. And so for those who, we're going to flesh this out as we go, but for those who who might need a little refresher on this or maybe an introduction, maybe this is the first time you're you're catching an episode of the Think Podcast. Um, thank you for watching. Thank you for listening. But um, I subscribe to presuppositionalism. And Dean subscribes to evidentialism, but you're also cool with classicalism, which, of course, those two work pretty well together, correct? Correct. Okay. So my question for you then is why evidentialism? Maybe what is it and why? Right. So essentially kind of the bare bones of evidentialism is essentially stepping into or seeking to step into the atheist worldview um, and and using the tools of philosophy, history, science, um, and basically your your main categories of what I'll say is overarching uh, education, literature, things like that. And, and the way that I put it is I seek to meet them where they are, uh, and, 
And so from that point, supply evidence as to why the Christian worldview uh, is true. Uh, that's essentially how I would classify the the method that that I use, the method that I use uh, as far as evidentialism is. Um, maybe that's too simplistic. I don't know if you want to add anything to that, but that's just kind of how I look at it. You're muted. I can't hear you. Oh, uh, there we go. Thanks. Yeah, I thought it was cool how you said that you you want to enter into the atheistic worldview and use their tools. Um, it sounded very presuppositional, quite honestly. Um, <laughs> it, you know, uh, so in well, that uh, so, was the point I was going to ask you, but we can get to that later. <laughs> oh yeah. Okay. Okay. Um, well, um, so when I talk about the different approaches to apologetics, one of the things I'll say is uh, evidential apologetics marshals evidence to show that the the christian worldview is the is very probably true or uh, true beyond reasonable doubt or the right. best explanation of the evidence something along those lines was is right. that fair okay fair enough okay yeah. so i agree with that so um so uh presuppositionalism on the other hand well okay so would you feel free to um do you have more to share on that or or are you good uh, well i'll just i'll just give um you know, maybe uh, an example uh, of what I mean by the evidence. Sounds great. Approach. So, so for instance, say I'm actually having a, a dialogue right now with a gentleman through email about uh, the Kalam cosmological argument. And so the question at hand is, did the universe begin to exist or not? Well, what I want to do in that scenario is I want to go ahead and say, okay, well, given that you're an atheist and that I'm a, I'm a Christian, what I want to do is I want to look at the data from what we call natural theology um, and the scientific data that's been accumulated and ask the question, what's uh, more probably true uh, than not? And so the scientific data, in my opinion, points to that there is a beginning of the universe. Therefore, it, su it would support the second premise of the Kalam. And so my hope is, is that as we move through this argument – uh, whatever begins to exist has a cause. The universe began to exist. Therefore, the universe has a cause that as I move through this argument and we bring up these data points and we even talk a little bit of philosophy, then I can move the atheist from where they are uh, into uh, a position where they're willing to accept and ready to accept uh, the gospel. So that's essentially the methodology that I'm doing. I'm using the evidence, you know, the cumulative e evidence uh, from the scientific data via natural theology. And I'm seeking to move the atheist from their, his atheism to uh, Christianity. Okay. Okay. How so that work. Yeah. I mean, it's, yeah, it works for me okay, um, cool. in terms of, in terms of definitions, I think. Um, right. So, so then let me, let me explain presuppositionalist apologetics as I understand it. Uh, and real quick, let's put a comment up. Uh, this is, <laughs> this is <laughs> I was from, just laughing at that. <laughs> yeah, Lucas, uh, Catalyzing Faith, which, by the way, if, you, if you're listening to this and you've never checked out Catalyzing Faith, uh, Lucas Giolis has a lot of videos up on YouTube, and um, and I've had him on the show before. We've talked about apologetics. We've talked to evidence and, and things like that, and um, uh, he's a very engaging guy, definitely worth checking out. Please go check out his channel, and uh, if you haven't done so, subscribe because um, 
that's someone that's that it's definitely worth listening to. Um, so anyway, all that to say, Lucas says, Whoa, it took Dean 20 minutes to mention the Kalam. So that's, uh, I don't know if he's saying that's, that's longer than usual, or it only took him 20 minutes. Do you know? Well, either way, he's, he's making reference to the fact that the Kalam is my jam. It's my favorite argument. I okay, did my okay. thesis at Biola on it. So he gives me a hard time about it. Okay. All right. Well, <laughs> So let's put a pin in that because I want to come back hey, to the, the Kalam sure. later um, sure. if we could, but let, let me, let's talk about presuppositionalism, or if you really want to be cool, hashtag that presup and just, uh, just lay out, you know, what makes it different from evidentialism or, or classical apologetics. So um, I've, I've given definitions of presuppositionalism quite a lot on this program, but again, we might have some first timers watching or people who missed those episodes. So presuppositionalism or presuppositional apologetics strives to use scripture um, and uh, scripture as the primary weapon of argumentation and to go at the roots of a worldview. Um, kind of like, I like to describe it as a home inspector going down into the basement of a house and examining the foundation. And what a presuppositionalist will do is enter into the unbiblical or unbelieving non-Christian worldview and examine its presuppositions. Presuppositions are beliefs that are held prior to any other inquiry. So um, an for an atheist, the explicit presupposition of an atheist is that we live in a universe in which God does not exist, so to speak. Um, the the um, presupposition, uh, one of the fundamental presuppositions of a Muslim is going to be that uh, there is no God but Allah and Muhammad is his prophet. Entailed by that is going to be that the Quran is the word of God. So um, what a presuppositionalist Christian apologist does is examines the presuppositions of the unbeliever, of the non-Christian, and exposes internal contradictions within the worldview, places where the foundation is not there, where the walls don't hold up the house, so to speak, to stretch the metaphor, and to, to reveal that there are internal contradictions within the worldview that not only can't answer whatever the objection is to Christianity, but also can't even account for the categories necessary to ask the question. Um, one example, since Dean gave an example, I'll give an example of this. One example would be if someone says that the God of the Bible is immoral. Well, there's all kinds of presuppositions bound up with that. Um, one, that morality is a thing, that there are laws of morality. There's a foundation or a standard of morality by which it would be better if God adhered to it than if he didn't. Um, but examining the unbiblical worldview what we do is we show that laws of morality, standards of morality, uh, must, if they're going to apply to God or to anyone, really, and in any kind of objective sense, must be objective, universal. They are immaterial because how could a law be made out of matter? They are unchanging um, and they are uh, knowable. And as well, they are also equally ultimate. Now, these are a couple of stipulations that I like to put on my definitions um, because I think that they're accurate, but also I think that in doing so, we can we can show that morality and logic actually presupposes not just a God, but the triune God of Scripture, who has all those same attributes. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are equally ultimate. Um, we can talk more about that in a few minutes, maybe. But then what we do is, after 
um, after showing that the non-Christian worldview can't account for the very moral standards that they that the atheist or the unbeliever wants to use to discredit God or prove God to be immoral, quote unquote. Then we enter into the biblical worldview and we show how in the biblical worldview um, there is no internal contradiction between God's stipulated morality and God's behavior or God's uh, the way God comports himself. So um, uh, what we do is we show that the biblical worldview is internally consistent. There's no there's no contradiction there. Um, and, and then we show that the atheistic worldview is not, and we show that the biblical worldview is necessary to even account for the kind of morality that the atheist wants to assume anyway. And ultimately what we're doing is we're showing that the unbeliever has to sneakily enter into our worldview and borrow our presuppositions in order to accuse God and try to discredit our worldview. So um, there's a contradiction in, entailed in the actual attack on God. Now, um, if this sounds overly philosophical or overly complicated to you, this is actually the approach that Jesus and Paul use in the, in scripture, at least that's what I maintain. And Dean, you and I can, we can talk about that as well. I see you smiling. I see you smiling. All right. We're going to, we're going to talk about that then definitely. But, um, but it, it, I, I believe that it's as simple as opening your Bible and seeing how Jesus and Paul argued and, uh, and then just applying that same method. So that is my definition of presuppositionalism. If you're watching live and you want to comment on that or ask a question, please do. Um, you can, especially if you're on YouTube, it's, it's, um, the, 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 for best results, use YouTube. But if you're watching on Facebook, then go to streamyard.com slash Facebook and enter in your permissions. And, um, and then you can join the, the conversation that way. Okay. So Dean comments on what I just said. Um, no, there's, a, there's a whole lot there that I agree with. I mean, uh, with regards to the question of morality, I don't, I don't see necessarily a huge difference between how you would approach that person uh, as I would approach that person. I would, I would approach that person with the moral argument for God's existence and simply say, you know, there cannot be uh, objective moral, moral values without the existence of God. So I think there we agree. Um, And I, and, and first before we, you know, uh, start, really digging into each other's, uh, you know, methodology. I, I just want to say that um, I have, I have no problem with uh, presuppositional apologetics in the sense that um, I don't think that it's a moral Christian issue with regards to methodology. I, if someone uh, decides that they want to use presuppositional apologetics as a way to reach non-believers, then I'm cool with that. If they want to use evidential apologetics, I'm cool with that uh, as well. So I don't see it necessarily as uh, somebody's doing something wrong one way or the other with regards to these two issues, with, with regards to these two uh, methodologies, because I think um, that both can accomplish, um, both can accomplish and guide or help uh, the non-believer. So that's first and foremost. If, if anybody thinks that, um, you know, I have a, a moral issue with regards to presuppositionalism, uh, I don't. So I want to get that out of the way first. Okay. All right. So, um, so from what you know about presuppositionalism, um, I'm going to, 
Well, I guess I'll just, I'll ask the question to make it specific and then ask why. So why, so do you believe that evidentialism slash classicalism, classical apologetics is a better approach? And if so, why? Okay. So I think it's a, a better approach in the sense that, um, one, I mean, anecdotal evidence, uh, I would say that, uh, there's a gentleman, uh, at the daily apologist who were, who is with us right now, who used to be an atheist and he was, uh, guided to, to faith through an evidential approach, not saying that he wouldn't have come to faith through a presuppositional po- approach, but I've just seen that, you know, or, or heard about th- that from him, you know, from his vantage point. Secondly, um, I think people now in culture, just because they are automatically skeptical of a couple things, uh, one, apologists in general, uh, and two, um, there seems to be within the culture in America this idea that um, there is this leaning towards in order for something to be valid, there must be evidence for it, and to presuppose something uh, prior to that seems a little, I don't, I don't want to say dirty, but off to them. So I, I guess the reason why I use evidentialism is because I want there to be um, as much uh, common ground as possible between me and the person uh, that I'm talking to so that I can enter into their worldview, provide evidence for why you know Christianity is true, uh, and so that we, uh, you know, have as I, I want to, I want to keep the bar as low as possible for the non-believer to enter into Christianity. And what, what, what? I guess my issue with presuppositional apologetics is, it seems just in a general sense, like what we're saying is the Bible is true. And how do I know that the Bible is true? Well, because the Bible's true. And so. That is kind of where I uh, take issue with it. I think the other ex- other issue that I have with it maybe isn't so much as the methodology as more as maybe some of the uh, members of the community, not usual, but uh, well, you might think that it's a moral issue as far as presuppositionalism is concerned. I don't know. Maybe that's a question that maybe that's a question that you can answer. But I think whenever we get into a into a, a spot with regards to methodology to say that this is the only way and this is the only biblical way in order to reach a non-believer, um, I think we may be treading on ground that uh, isn't necessarily the place to be treading ground. So there's my four cents and a nickel. <laughs> okay, so – it sounds to me like your goal really is very evangelistic. You right. want to you want to reach the unbeliever on terms that will make sense to him and or her and present your argumentation in a way that will be most likely to be accepted. As you said, put the the bar as low as possible. Is that right. accurate? Yeah. Yeah, okay. Well, let, let me just first of all totally affirm the goal of evangelism if if your apologetics if one's apologetic is not rooted in the desire to see your discussion partner or your opponent quote unquote um repent and trust in the lord jesus christ and be saved and receive eternal life through jesus you're totally doing it wrong you need to go back and repent because 
what other motivation do you have? Could someone have, Oh, I want to destroy this person. You know, you know, that's not biblical or, or, Oh, um, you know, I want to, um, I want to show how intellectual I am. And I will say I myself in the past have very much fallen into both sides of, you know, both, both of those ditches. And, um, when I, when I do apologetics trainings now, I will talk about how, you know, um, the charter verse for Christian apologetics, first Peter three fifteen, um, it says, uh, in, in the broader context, it says, uh, do not be afraid of them. Don't, don't fear them. Don't fear their fear tactics. It's speaking about the unbeliever and it is so, but, but then it says, but in your hearts, sanctify Jesus, uh, the Lord is Jesus as holy man. I'm getting my translations all jumbled in my head, but sanctify the Lord Jesus as holy and um, always being prepared to give a, a response to anyone, a defense to anyone who asks you for the reason for the hope that you have within you. There we go. And um, the idea is you must not be afraid. You must not fear man. That can't be your motivation because if, if we're being driven by fear, then on the one hand, I'm going to be afraid of this person thinking of me as a dummy. So I'm going to overly flatter them. But now right. I don't, now I don't care about their soul. I only care about my reputation. Right. Right. And on the flip side, if I fear man and I view this person as someone who's going to harm me, oh, if he out argues me, I will be ruined. Now I have to over, you know, come over the top of this person and just destroy them. And that's not biblical. I don't have their best interest at heart. I, the whole thing is I don't want this person to perish that God loved the world so that he gave his only begotten son so that whoever believes in him would not perish. You know, I don't want this person to be destroyed. Right. Um, so fear of man, I think, can lead you in both directions. Uh, and and I say that literally as someone who has to constantly watch myself for both of those. And God forgive me for how many times today I, I would still fall into those ditches. And, and the Lord can judge me for that, you know, and and, and hopefully he'll show that to me. Um, okay. That's a long-winded way of saying, man, thumbs up <laughs> to what you just said. Now, I will, I want to agree with something else you said too, Dean, and that is, Presuppers are a lot more likely to say that presuppositionalism is exclusively the the only approach, and evidentialism and classicalism is bad. And on the flip side, you're going to get I've noticed a lot more evidentialists and uh, classicalists who will say, you know what, all of them are good. We just prefer this method, which is kind of what I hear you saying today. Right? No, I I I would affirm that. That's kind of my, my statement. I would say, Hey, listen, here's my issue with kind of the, not you, but, but some people in the precept community. And I would say that, you know, all three are, are valid forms of reaching non-believers. Okay. So, um, so, okay, let's see, because I, I, I'm, I'm hesitating to respond. Here's, here's what I want to, here's what I want to say to that. So. I, my, my history in terms of apologetics, um, I'm getting an echo from you, by the way. Oh, okay. Um, I need to turn my mic down. Uh, no, the, the mic volume sounds good. I wonder, do you have, do you have headphones? Are you wearing headphones? I'm not wearing headphones. Okay. I'll, um, okay. That's okay. I'm not, I'm not hearing it now. So I think we're good. I don't know what it was a glitch, but, um, so the, um, the presuppositional approach here, let, let me tell you why I, I'm not as dogmatic about it. The, the question is, so let me finish that sentence. I'm not as dogmatic as some 
presuppositionless. My lingering question is, Dean, I wonder if I should be more dogmatic about it. Literally, I feel like maybe I ought to be more dogmatic, being being candid with you. Mm-hmm. The reason why is when you when you understand what's entailed, what's involved in unbelief based on what the scriptures say. I my question is how how can you validly if you believe scripture and what the what the bible actually says about the unbeliever in particular and how how readily available god's truth is how can you take a different approach other than presuppositionalism like i i'm okay maybe let's start here you believe the bible is the word of god right yeah um Agreed. do you believe that it's uh that that uh well i don't want to get off on a side track and so I okay, so I will commit to not going down a sidetrack here. But do you do are you an inerrantist? Inerrantist? I believe that it is wholly inspired, inerrant, uh, infallible word of God. Got it. Okay. Yeah, me too. All right. So we're good on that. Whew, that was that was that was good. All right, all right, good. Yes, oh my goodness. That's right, that's right. So we so so that being said, um, do you believe would you say that you believe that the Bible is our starting point, not just for faith and salvation, but even for how we approach apologetics. I, I would say that the Bible is the foundation for every aspect of the Christian life, whether that's worship, whether that's, um, you know, living life by the fruit of the spirit or, you know, identifying those things that are flaws in our flesh. The Bible is the answer for that. And I think, uh, the Bible is the the answer, or or is the the guidebook for Christian apologetics as well. I think okay. first three is is clear when it talks about like it's an imperative, like it's a command that says you need to give a defense for the hope that you have within you when people ask you why. Right. So I'll paraphrase. So I agree with you there. Okay. So, um. So then, let me ask you this question. So right. if you're coming, if you're as an evidentialist. And it sounds like you and I have the same belief about scripture and the role that it plays in the life of the of the believer, which I'm not surprised. I I, I didn't think anything different, but I it's it's you know, hearing you affirm it means we can move on to then to, to the next point. Um what in scripture would you say gives rise to an evidentialist approach? Because that's one of my big hang-ups with evidentialism is when I look at scripture. I see it very much supporting a presuppositional approach, and I don't see it supporting evidentialism, which I'm happy to expound upon, but maybe if you want to present the positive case for it first. Yeah. So, I mean, I think that God is concerned um, with evidence, and I think we're we're going to end up parking ourselves for a good deal of this conversation in Romans chapter one, for sure, um, because I think that both the evidentialist and the presuppositionalist point to Romans chapter one and say, look, there it is. There it is. This is what is there. Right. Mm-hmm. And so I, I would say the, I would say that Romans one is obviously a place where both of us are going to have um, some, some groundwork with regards to our approach, because uh, Romans one says there, and I'm just going to give a rough paraphrase of Romans one. It says there that God's divine nature and power and his attributes can be understood by what's clearly seen. So it seems there that there's this tie in with natural theology that's there, which obviously an evidentialist approach uh, primarily uses to 
um, engage the skeptic. But I also think that just overall in general, as you survey from Genesis to Revelation, um, that God is not opposed to providing evidence for his existence. As a matter of fact, uh, one of the ways in which you know that prophecy has come true is if the prophet speaks, and I, and this is from, I think it's, um, I think it's Deuteronomy 18. That sounds right. I've just been reading in Deuteronomy lately. Right. So I, I saw that so, verse recently. One second. I'm going to plug my charger in here. Okay. All right. So while you're doing that, uh, we're talking about, there you go. Does scripture give rise to an evidentialist apologetic? So, uh, so okay. So go on. So fulfilled prophecy. In Deuteronomy 18, uh, where he talks about how do you know if uh, pro a prophecy is true or a prophet is true and sound and, and right is if what he speaks then comes true. So that seems to me to say uh, you don't have to presuppose that the prophet is true, right? Or that the prophet is accurate. You have to view the evidence for whether or not what he says comes true. So I think that is um, something that at least initially gives rise to a kind of evidential uh, approach. So okay. My two places to start off with. I don't want to, you know, just go oh, down a good. litany of things. No, that's, that's good, man. That's good. And, um, my, okay. So, so the, the prophecy coming true, coming to pass is how is the criterion that the Lord gives for judging whether or not a prophet is from God, but that's, but that's not a that's not evidence for God's existence or the reality well, it, of God, is it? It could be because. But is that how God presents it in Deuteronomy? Well, not specifically in Deuteronomy, but we do have places uh, in the in the Bible where um, the prophet does engage in a type of, and, and I don't mean to be flippant here, um, in a type of flip away. Um, uh, in a type of uh, show and tell and test, right? So Elijah at Mount Carmel, where you have the prophet mm. Baal. Um, what does he say? Hey, you guys do this. I'll mm -hmm. do this. And whoever's God shows up, that's the God that's true. And and in that scenario, there's not a there's there's not this um, type of already ingrained. Um, uh, there, there's not as in that scenario, it's both the prophets of Baal and also the people of Israel. And one of the things that Elijah says basically is, why are you flip-flopping between two opinions? Mm -hmm. Right. Mm -hmm. And so what does he do in order to drive home the point that Yahweh is Yahweh? He presents this God through what Elijah uh, ha has done, mm -hmm. presents himself in an evidential way to show people that he is Yahweh. Okay, so that I think is is maybe the best example of evidence being given. Um, I'm as you're you're talking about this. So James White, Doctor James White, has addressed that. Uh, you know, no, I'm just kidding. I'm just yeah, kidding. right. No, I don't know some guy. Um, uh, notorious, depending on how you view him, he's either a notorious or a famous uh, Christian presuppositionalist. But um, 
he talks, he talks about that encounter and he goes, all right, fine. So, so if that's evidence, then what did they do at the end of that encounter? You know, they took all the prophets of Baal down to the river and slaughtered them. So if that's where you want to go with it, then you better be ready to slaughter the unbelievers afterwards. And it's kind of like, well, I don't know if we want to quite go there. Um, well, I, I don't think that that's the necessarily a, uh, the, the thing that we do with the unbelievers is simply a, a point of reference of saying, this yes. is a point in scripture where God uh, has provided evidence for his existence um, yeah. that doesn't require necessarily. Um, uh, it's more of an evidential approach than I would say a, a presuppositional approach to. Evidence. Yeah. I, I, and, and, you know, to be totally fair, I would, ag- I would, I think I would agree with you that that's, that's awfully evidential. That encounter is pretty darn evidential. I mean, literally, you've got firsthand evidence coming down from heaven, right? right. Um, uh, a couple of thoughts on that, and I'm I'm spitballing here, Dean. I'm I'm spitballing. So, on the one hand, that's not duplicable for us today, replicable or whatever, right? right? We can't call. I mean, sh- sure, we could call down fire. I mean, I there's nothing in scripture that guarantees we can call down fire like that. Um, to burn up a sacrifice on an altar. If you guys don't know what, what you've been anointed as a prophet and you've got that deal going on, Joel, uh, right. Not a prophet. I, yeah, I, I, um, I think I may have the spiritual gift of prophecy in understood in a new Testament context, not, not like Elijah, but more like uh, boldly speaking, uh, biblical truth kind of thing. Um, that being said, um, if you, as a presuppositionalist, I'm looking at that encounter and I'm going, okay, you've got two different worldviews placed up against each other. The, um, the, the, um, Baalish worldview, the, the, the pagan worldview in that regard, in that instance said, stipulated, our God is the God of you know, storms and rainstorms and fertility and whatnot. Interestingly, Historically speaking, this is a total sidebar, man. But um, but you can trace the worship of Baal through um the Canaanite world into the Greco-Roman pagan world, and he actually became Zeus. So Zeus is the continuation of Baal worship, and um, which I think it's interesting that Zeus has a lightning bolt in his hand, isn't it? Right. Yeah. And 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 there in that encounter on uh, Mount Carmel, you've got okay, the the Baalish worldview that Baal is supposed to be the one who can send a lightning bolt, who can send a storm. Right. Right. He's supposed to be able to send fire from the sky. And, and just as a sidebar, I love Elijah's commentary about Baal. Oh yeah, w- which part? As if I didn't know where we were going. Is he on vacation, essentially, is he asleep? Is he relieving himself? Where- <laughs> right, right. I mean, total straight up. Smack talking in, uh, you know, Yahweh yes. love. <laughs> yes. If if anyone ever thinks that it's out of character for a Christian apologist to mock unbelieving thought, uh, read your Bible because there is nothing wrong with making fun of um, of. Be, here's the thing: these pagan priests were leading God's people away from God. They were leading God's people into destructive, horrible practices of worship. I mean, you, when you look at the way that they worship their God there on the mountain, they're slashing themselves. The blood is flowing like rivers. I mean, that's a horribly destructive worldview, man. It's like the, that's the, rough. That's rough. 
Yeah. And it's, it's like secular worldviews today that, you know, there's, there's rivers of, of a uh, preborn infant blood flowing mm-hmm. from the altars of Planned Parenthood and, and, um, abortion mills. I mean, it's pag- paganism and, um, uh, what we today might call skepticism, radical skepticism. Right. It, ha- it has a body count, you know, communism, these, these right. unbiblical worldviews have body counts, radical Islam. So, mm-hmm. okay. So where, where are we? All right. So looking as a presuppositionalist and I promise I'm going to, I'm going to get to the end of this here real quick. Um, You've got, you've got an unbelieving worldview that is internally inconsistent because they made claims about what their God was supposed to be able to do. And he couldn't do it. There's a contradiction there. God also, the Lord makes that claim about himself. He's the creator of heaven and earth. He ought to be able to make fire rain down as well. And sure enough, he did. So the biblical worldview is vindicated. The unbiblical worldview is eradicated, uh, rebuffed, rebutted, disproven. Um, and the very fact that it's step one, annihilate the unbiblical worldview, step two, vindicate the Christian worldview, or at that point, you know, uh, Yahwistic or whatever you want to call it, Judaic worldview. Um, right. To me, that feels very presuppositional. Step one, step two, and then a call to repentance. Right. So so here's my question about that. What, what about that step, those two steps, uh, is not available to the evidentialist. Mm. It seems like, it seems like if you were to ask me, what do you do when you do evidential apologetics? Well, you know, I, you know, argue for the Christian worldview. I show that there's a, a, a contradiction or a problem with a materialistic naturalistic worldview. Mm-hmm. And then I say, Hey, here's the evidence for Christianity. You need to become a Christian. Okay. Fair, fair point. And, and so, so this is where I need to pick your brain a little bit more. Okay, uh, I'll probably a lot more. So, um, given what the Bible says in Romans one, as you mentioned, we're going to have to go back to Romans one. Um, for for for, for me, my big hangup is what the Bible says about the unbeliever is he's not neutral. As a, as a matter of fact, okay, think about this. Doesn't Elijah call the Israelites? to give up their professed neutrality. How long will you waver between, you know, will you limp between two opinions? You're professing to be neutral, but you can't be neutral. Right. Um, If the Lord is God, worship him. If Baal is God, worship him. He's calling them out for their professed neutrality, their purported neutrality. And my problem with evidentialism, speaking frankly, is it falls into that same trap of purported neutrality. And I don't, I don't, I don't believe that you're neutral. I know you're 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 a Bible believing Christian, died in the wool Christian. You believe that the Bible is true, right? So, so if that's the case, then Romans one says that the unbeliever already knows God. I mean, he you know not that he is uh, neutral towards God. So why treat the skeptic? Why treat the unbeliever as if he can reason to uh, God given evidence? Because according to Romans 1, he already has enough evidence. As a matter of fact, he already knows God, and he has chosen at some level not to give, not to glorify him as God and not to give him thanks. Right. So why would I pretend, why would you pretend that the unbeliever isn't doing that? Or, or are you not pretending that? Right. So I, I don't necessarily know that I pretend as if the unbeliever, um, you know, isn't falling into what Romans one talks about. I think the issue 
here with Romans one and, and feel free to correct me if you, well, I, I know if I need correction, you'll gladly give it to me. Um, is that <clears throat> a couple of things. So I think here, and I'll just turn to it. So I agree that for the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness press one, the truth for what we can know about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them for his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world and the things that have been made yes. so they're without excuse for number two, for they, although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. So I agree that the unbeliever falls into that. And so, um, but that, but, but that doesn't mean um, that the unbeliever still doesn't have an anthropology similar to mine. Um, that doesn't okay, mean how so. Okay. So the anthropology of everybody that's ever been created since the time of Adam and Eve is that all of us um, are image bearers, right? Mm -hmm. One of the reasons that we can know that morality is objective is because we have this moral sense perception that other animals in the animal kingdom so to speak, animal kingdom, so to speak, don't have right. and doesn't self-reflect about whether or not it's right to kill a baby gazelle or not. Right. Right. Uh, right. The safari guy doesn't arrest the lion and say, Mr. Lion, you know, you have the right to remain silent. Everything you can say and do will be used against you in the court of law. It just kills. Right. right? right. If I did that, then what would happen? They'd put me in court. And if I just said, well, I'm no different than the lion. Well, that would be a problem. Mm -hmm. So when I so when we talk about the anthropology of humanity, all of us are image bearers. Yeah. Um, and so if logic, right, this is one of the areas that the the presuppositional approach takes with the transcendental argument, is that um, you can't you can't do uh, you don't have a foundation for things like reason and logic. But I would argue that given the imago day. Regardless of our beliefs, mm -hmm. we all have that ability. And so yes. while real quick, so while while the unbeliever suppresses the truth uh, at some level and their hearts are darkened, mm -hmm. that doesn't mean that I still can't engage them from a logical, reasonable, evidential approach and move them uh, into or help guide them into uh, a realization of the evidence. Um, and then call them to repent, uh, and, and follow God. Okay. Um, yes. So, so if you're, if you, again, I know your goal is to get them to repent and follow God, you know, believe in Jesus Christ, uh, unto salvation. My question is if scripture says that they already know God, correct? Right. So when an atheist says, I don't know God. Is is that statement correct? I don't believe in God. I don't believe in God. Uh, let me sorry. Let me rephrase it because I want to. Uh, here's what I'm often told: I have not seen enough convincing evidence to believe in God. Right. Is that correct or not? I, I don't think that that's correct. I think that I think that to a certain to to a certain degree, maybe even a large degree, based on Romans one. Um, and here's the other part of the puzzle: um, that they have suppressed the truth, but also. 
Um, and I think this is true with the, the people of Israel in the Old Testament. If you stay in a particular, if you stay at a particular distance from God long enough, your heart will be seared as to believe false things as truth. Right. Right. And so that's where the non-believer is. Yeah. Yeah. And some of the most ardent believers, uh, non-believers rather, some of the most hardened skeptics are those who have the most truth, scientific truth, for example. Right. Because creation is screaming. Right. God is there. And the more information you take in that says God is there, if I'm committed to suppressing that, I have to try all the harder, which means I have to get more and more ardent in right. my in my unbelief. Okay, so, um, so, the, um, so I'm I'm totally with you in that scripture does say we're all made in the image of God, but that's exactly my point. So to argue from the evidence, and I, and man. We haven't gotten into this yet, but I'm a big fan of evidence. People think preceptors aren't fans of evidence. I love evidence. I love the evidence because because I believe in it, because I'm starting from Christian presuppositions. I believe evidence is a real thing. But, um, you know, to, to take the unbeliever's statement that he doesn't know God, doesn't have enough evidence at face value and say, fine, here's some more evidence, um, aren't you then just Aren't aren't you tacitly um, denying what the Bible says and saying you don't have enough evidence? Here's some more evidence. Aren't you tacitly denying what the Bible says and taking the unbelievers' claims as if they're true, um, even if you don't really believe it? And if you don't believe it, then why why act as if you do? It, it isn't that uh, disingenuous. Okay, so so could you simplify that a little? Okay, bit? Okay, yeah, yeah. And I'm sorry, I'm thinking aloud here. So. Um, <laughs> Okay, here, here. You know what? I actually did write up some notes on this beforehand because I, I wanted, uh, I didn't want to have to like think this through in our conversation. I wanted to be able to sort of have have these thoughts laid out. So, all right. Um, okay. So the the concept of evidence. Again, I love evidence as a believer. Um, sometimes you know, atheists go, "You haven't presented any evidence." All right. Well. That doesn't mean I don't like evidence. I just don't think you're entitled to evidence. So what is um, what is evidence? Let, why don't we start there? What is evidence and what is necessary for evidence to be a meaningful concept? Are you asking me? Or oh, you... I'm sorry. Yes. What, for you, oh, what, what, how would you define evidence? So I would define evidence um, that which uh, supports um, that which supports a, the, the truth value of a particular uh, proposition or or statement. So, for instance, I think there's philosophical evidence. I think there's historical evidence. I think there's scientific evidence. And so that's essentially just a broad sweeping statement about what I define evidence as. Um, that which okay. either supports or negates a particular proposition or statement. Okay. Or negates too. Okay. So – yeah, that's. I think that's helpful. Um, all right. So, what are the what are the to use a very common precept term? What are the preconditions for evidence being a meaningful concept? Are you going to precept me right now, Joel? Well, no, because I think you and I agree on this. Right. No. Uh, obviously, logic and reason. Right. Are right. And obviously, we would agree that the uniformity of nature is needed as yes. well. In, so I, I agree with you there because without the uniformity of nature, 
uh, it's really hard to test things. Right. Well, it's impossible to test things. Well, let's say this. It's impossible to have any kind of certainty whatsoever on your conclusions, correct? Right. If would, nature's not if nature's not uniform, how do okay. I know what I did in my lab yesterday is will even be the same if I go to the lab next door? Accounting, right. I mean, I'm talking about all things being equal, right? Obviously, there could be a contaminant happening, right? Well, yeah, right, right, exactly. Um, or well, yes, correct. Outside of a miracle happening, yes, that's right. So we, Christ, the Christian worldview, of course, accounts. And includes miracles. Right. Miracles are very strange, which is why in the Bible they're called signs because they're so out of the ordinary. They're, they're supposed to get your attention because right. we're supposed to we live in a uniform world. Um, uh, okay, so so logic, reasoning, uniformity in nature, uh, the po the possibility possibility of induction or inductive reasoning, meaning I can take in data, um, limited data, and I can then draw conclusions about the whole. Right? right, I don't have to test gravity on every single planet. I can test it here, figure out what the acceleration of gravity is, and then calculating the mass of sure. Mars, I can figure out what the you know the corresponding gravitational acceleration will be over there, et cetera, et cetera. I'm not a physicist. You get it. Um, okay, so which worldview? I, I'm not trying to. I'm not trying to take you on a. I'm I not, know. I know. This isn't a gotcha. It's okay, this is a learning experience for me. I, well, I've, me too. Believe me, I've never been. Uh, you know, preset before. So I'm ready. <laughs> Let's do it. I'm not, this isn't a gotcha. I know, I know it feels I know. like a gotcha. I'm not, but I'm, but truly which worldview accounts for those preconditions, which worldview supports, you know, if I'll say this, if you start with which worldview, which worldview uh, starting, starting from which worldview, do you get to all those preconditions? Logic, reasoning, um, the intelligibility of the cosmos, even the reliability of human truth-seeking faculties. You said it yourself. We're made in God's image. That goes a long way towards the reliability right. of truth-seeking right. faculties. So, you know, which 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 purported worldview actually accounts for that, supports that? Obviously, I don't want to put words in your mouth, but again, I'm not trying to. I, I agree with you. Uh, well, here's and here's I think. One of the we both agree that it's Christianity. Yes, but I would say where the where the presuppositional approach can get into danger is yeah. is to say that it's only Christianity because I would and maybe maybe I couldn't, but I would suggest that if if that might work for an atheist. But I don't know that it would work for a Muslim. Yes, it would. I don't know yeah. that it would work for a Jew. Yes, it would. I I don't I don't. I, sorry, Joe. I would I would argue. Uh, maybe I. Well, I wouldn't argue. Um, I would you say that argue. the Muslim would look at you, Joel, and would say the exact same thing that you're saying to him. You'd say, "Well, what accounts for rationality? What accounts for logic? What accounts for the uniformity yeah. of nature?" And they would look at you and they say, "Well, it's uh, Allah, right?" Absolutely. Sure. Well, uh, in my experience, Muslims don't typically Muslim presuppositionalism. I have not found to be a thing. It doesn't mean that it couldn't exist, but well, I maybe, find that Muslims tend to be more rationalists. <laughs> What's that? I said, maybe, I, maybe I'm the first one via example. <laughs> maybe, but I've thought of this obviously. And those are the, those are the, the big stumbling blocks. I think for most Christian presuppositionalists, um, I, 
I will say this. I am in formation currently. I do not claim to be an expert on apologetics to Muslims. Mm -hmm. Far from it. Far from it. Um, But it is something that I am developing in and something I'm working on. And I, I have a working theory that a monadic concept of God, a Unitarian concept of God, like in Islam or Judaism, cannot account for logic in particular because the laws of logic uh, have the attributes, the attribute together, they have the attribute of um, being both uh, one and many. In other words, there are multiple laws of logic and they are all equally ultimate to one another. The law of identity, the law of non-contradiction, the law of excluded middle. They, there's a plurality there. And there's a unity such that logic is one and logic is diverse within itself. You see where I'm going here, don't you? I, I do, but I, I want you to go there so that I can respond okay. to it. Okay. So I still want to come back to our positions, but but I, I this is this is part of it. This is part of it. Okay. So you which monotheistic worldview can account for invisible, immaterial, absolute, unchanging, universal, knowable laws. And knowable is a big thing because we believe in a God who self-reveals. That's very, very important, but can also account for laws that are equally ultimate to one another such that, here's the thing, a monadic God, you know, one of the oldest problems in philosophy is the problem of the one and the many. You have that problem in, I posit, and again, this is a theory that I'm working on. I I could be wrong here. I don't think I am though. Um, Which worldview accounts for logic that has the problem of the one and the many in it? And Cornelius Van Til talks about how the triune God solves the problem. Cornelius Van Til, for those who don't know, the godfather, grandfather of Christian presuppositionalism. Okay. Logic has, I believe, the problem of the one and the many ingrained within it. It's only the triune God who can solve that problem. Why? Because what is, what, um, which attribute, and I don't know if attribute's the right word there, but which attribute is, is fundamental in God? Is it his oneness or his threeness? Neither one. Neither one. Both God's uh, internal plurality and his internal oneness, both are equally ultimate. That is why in the universe, we have one and many. We have categories and we have instantiations of those categories. We have mankind and we have Joel and we have Dean and all the other particular particulars of what it means to be mankind. And categories are a thing, you know, one, oneness. And individuals are a thing. So if you take God out of the equation, specifically the triune God, Cornelius Van Til says what you're left with is a bunch of pearls with no holes in them, and you're trying to thread them onto a string that has no beginning and no end. The string is the laws. The pearls are the facts. So you've got a bunch of little facts, little brute facts, and you've got laws. And there's no way to connect the two unless, and this is every, every non-Christian worldview throughout history, every non-Christian philosophy has wrestled with is 
existence primarily a bunch of discrete facts or discrete instantiations or or you know discrete little individual little atoms or is it all one you know like like in hinduism atman is brahman you and a man you are actually to be identified with oneness and um only christianity solves that problem because god is one and many god is one and three now you go back to logic logic is one Logic is three. Even if you want to say there's more than three, that's fine. You know, laws laws of logic. But God is one. God is three. Logic is one and many. The triune God of Scripture accounts for logic in a way that a monad or a Unitarian God would not. So, so then on that note, and I think this is this is key to kind of. Um, the presuppositional approach specifically within Christian presuppositionalism. So, so you're, you're saying that the only, the reason that the triune God of the universe accounts for logic is because logic is one in many and the triune God is one in many. And so my question then is, um, is I haven't heard, you've kind of outlined it in general, but I haven't heard specifically why, it requires a one in many God to be this uh, foundation for for logic. Why couldn't the why couldn't the and I agree with you. The God is the foundation of logic. I'm just I'm just uh, trying to get what you're saying here from from the Muslim presup position. Why couldn't the Muslim simply just say, "Well, God is Unitarian and uh, he doesn't violate uh, any of those three uh, laws, uh, because they in and of themselves, uh, or, or they, um, flow from his nature as a Unitarian God. Well, because, because a Unitarian God's nature is not diverse within itself. But why so, does it be diverse to account for logic? Because logic is diverse within itself. So, um, so if, if a, if a monad if a if a monadic god, and for those listening, a, a monad would be the opposite of a triune god, or, or, or it'd be it'd be you know the converse or whatever. It would be a non-triune god, just a brute god. If if he is, if it he were fun, uh, fundamental reality, if that if that was what was at the base of all metaphysics, if if because as theists, we believe that God is alone, necessary, and ultimately real. Everything else that exists is contingent, might not have existed, but God created us, right? We can we can imagine a world in which Joel and Dean don't exist. We can't imagine a world in which God doesn't exist. At least I can't. I don't know about you. But um, uh, but a, a monadic God um, prior to creation would be all that ever existed. And so all that ever existed would be not just one in the sense that God is one unified, but one meaning singular, uh, only soul, you know, all, uh, only one. And so, um, any, any diversity that arose afterwards would have to be a secondary creation of God. Diversity would be contingent. Diversity might not have been there because only God exists necessarily. And if God is solely one, only one, monadically one, then absolute oneness is the only thing that is 
foundational, fundamental, necessarily existent. But within logic, we have equal ultimacy of the laws of logic. Neither their plurality nor each individual law is primary, logically more necessary. Do you get what I'm saying? It's not as though the three laws could have been one, but contingently exist as three. So the problem is you've got laws of logic in which diversity exists necessarily within them. Those three laws of logic could not be otherwise. There's no possible world in which they are otherwise, in which there was only two or there was only one. But that would mean that there's something that exists necessarily, i.e. the plurality within logic, that wasn't there before God created the universe. So what are they rooted in? They're not rooted in God. They're not, they're not rooted in a monadic God because that plurality would have to ex- exist contingently. And it doesn't exist contingently, which means it exists necessarily, but somehow isn't rooted and grounded in the God who supposedly exists necessarily. What that means is either logic really isn't a thing as we understand it, or that God doesn't exist necessarily. And my God does exist necessarily. So my God's better than their God. And their God, by the way, doesn't exist. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. So I I think I see what you're saying there. Um, Never fleshed that out until right now. I'll have to mull on that a little bit more. Maybe the other thing that the the presuppositional uh, Jew might say to you is be would be the same thing that you would say to the atheist in the sense of, well, uh, Joel, you think that this is the case, but you've actually rejected scripture and you're suppressing the truth. And that's why you're blinded and your heart is darkened towards Judaism. So how would you how would you handle uh, that type of because because my hang up with presuppositionalism it seems like as with the Muslim as with the Jew they could just come back and say the same things that that you would say to to the non believer. So, so how would you get them uh, out of that um, that that claim that hey Joel uh, you're suppressing the truth. Um, that's clearly been revealed by Yahweh, um, or by, by Allah without, Mm -hmm. uh, essentially, uh, being an evidentialist. (laughs) Um, okay. Real quick. Um, Ethan is asking how long this is going because he's heading out soon. So, uh, if you're listening to this later, we get a lot of viewers who watch, um, while we're, while we're going live. So Ethan is saying, how long is this going? Well, can we just take a minute? I'm not avoiding your question because I do want to address it. Um, but let's put a pin in there. So the, the question is, how would you respond to a Muslim or a Jewish person who says, no, you're suppressing the truth because uh, you're adding to God's word or you're violating God's word? Fair? Is that, is that the question? Without being an evidentialist to respond. Oh, without being an evidentialist. Okay, good all right. Um, let's go to some, qu- are you okay going to a few questions real quick? Because sure. and, and that's perfectly fine. And by the way, um, you know, something like this, dude, we could talk about this for like days. <laughs> we, we could, and man, I got to tell you, um, we should do this again. We need to, I so would love to, cause I'm enjoying it. Questions. And then, uh, I don't want to, you know, keep anybody longer who might have a question. So yeah, that's, that's good. Um, are you okay going two hours and we'll just call it at two hours? Sure. Uh, let's go to some questions that we 
don't we haven't well here's just a comment this is from eli ayala from revealed apologetics uh it's nice to finally have a fellow pre-supper watching um actually um dean eli his ministry revealed apologetics is very good and eli is an excellent thinker and um before i did my debate with john john uh, anthony I spent about uh, 45 minutes on the phone with Eli walking through some of my arguments. And he, man, that dude gave me an education in that 45 minute phone call. He just thinks so stinking clearly. So um, very, very good, good brother. I don't know. Have you guys ever connected before? I've seen him in a debate. I think it was with Eric Murphy, if I'm not mistaken. If he wants to comment on that, he's more than welcome to. Okay. I don't know. But I think I saw him in a debate with Eric Murphy on Eric's channel one time. Okay. Cool. Uh, Noah Despain says that the, oh, my debate with John Anthony is where he first heard about me. Uh, it helped him get through the night at the airport because we missed our plane. <laughs> uh, good. Hope hope it helped put you to sleep, Noah. Um, all right. Let's see. Larry Dolendi has been watching. Not sure if he still is, but Larry, what is up, my brother? Um, okay. Ethan asks this, and and Ethan, you you asked a lot of questions. If you're still watching, I'm going to try to get to as many as possible, but uh, maybe we can just uh, shotgun these here. Do you only use presup with non-believers, or do you use them with Christians too? Well, as you can see, I just used it on Dean. So, um, no, I, I think um, so. So here's the thing: we haven't talked about this yet, Dean, but I think evidential evidential apologetics is a great approach to bolster and strengthen the faith, the faith of believers. I actually think that that is what Jesus did for John the Baptist. Like John the Baptist, you know, when he was in jail, he was questioning, Hey, are you the, are you the one or should we wait for somebody else? Jesus goes, look at all the evidence. Okay. John the Baptist was already a believer. So he's like, so what do you think? You know, am I who I say I am? And, uh, you know, so, but, but, um, but my own faith has been greatly, um, bolstered and strengthened and buttressed by the evidence. So, uh, but in terms of precept, uh, I, I think presuppositionalism is a great approach to use with anybody. I, it, it, you should use it on yourself. Am I being consistent with my own, um, you know, foundational beliefs? What, what do you think? I, I don't know that I've ever precept another Christian, uh, ever. I mean, just because that's just not my wheelhouse. So, I mean, if you're telling me that that you uh, you have obviously you have with with me, but I mean, I don't really know how to answer that question because I'm an ever <laughs> totally fair. Um, okay, let's see. Um, Noah Noah just uh, commented that he would use it with fellow Christians, and part of sanctification is changing our presuppositions. Um, Okay. Uh, there's, there's a lot of con- uh, conversation there, but let's move on. Uh, Ethan then asks question for both of us. Do you think it's important to publicly hold other Christians accountable when they are going against the Christian message or having bad behavior? Dean, what do you think? I'm not sure what that has to do with our topic of discussion at the moment. I mean, this is about evidentialism and precept. Not what do we do when Christians act badly? Yeah, right. So yes, but not really germane to our discussion today. 
uh, look, um, we all, Bible says we all stumble in many ways. Um, you know, uh, Ethan, what I would challenge you with is I know from our previous conversations that you yourself have not even lived up to your own moral standard. And given what you know about God, I know you don't believe you've lived up to his moral standard, even though you claim not to believe he exists. Um, the question is, how do we have our sins forgiven? How do we have our hypocrisy forgiven? And well, let me let me jump in here. I mean, yeah. because I see a comment in the comment section where it says, "Oh, come on, Dean." Obviously, um, in in my personal opinion, is any type of bad behavior uh, has to be dealt with um, by other Christians. I mean, let's 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 think here. Uh, it's clear that the whole Robbie. Zacharias thing has reverberated through Christian apologetics and we mm-hmm. all have to deal with that. And there are going to be people that ask us about it. So we have to be able to have an answer about that, but to kind of flip the script a little bit. Um, my question would be to Ethan, um, why would any behavior that he consider bad actually be bad? Right. By what, by what definition is he calling something wrong or bad on his worldview? And I don't know. Yeah think that he has justification for it uh dean is the question you're looking for by what standard sure (laughs) uh okay very very presuppositional of you dean um but but I, i will say the the moral argument the moral like class like the classical form of the moral argument is very close to a preset like that's that's almost where like the nexus occurs between evidential or classicalism and, and uh, presuppositionalism, you know, cause it's like, it, like our, our two apologetic universes meet, you know, in, in the Marvel universe, not that I know anything about this. Uh, the nexus is where the different uh, parallel universes all meet. And I feel like the moral argument is like right there because the, uh, the classicalist moral argument and the presuppositional argument for morality is like, they're almost two sides of the same coin. Um, and so I very much agree with what you're saying. How do you avoid uh, making morality just completely prefer Just it's preference, totally radically subjective. Without God. You like vanilla. I like chocolate. Right. Right. Exactly. Right. And um, you know what, what Ethan actually in the comments, what he said and um he said something along the lines of morality doesn't have to be subjective because if we agree on a goal, then we can sort of reason. Here's the thing. Uh, we don't all agree on a goal because I think the highest form of morality is glorify the Lord, enjoy him forever. <laughs> you know, like that's morality for me. So we don't agree. Um, See, Ethan made a mistake because when he made that comment, he instantly united the two apologists who were supposed <laughs> to be at each other's throat to start, you know, putting the right. down. Um, that's you know, right. And, when our powers and combine, and that's the, and I think that's the point that that you're getting at. I mean, we say things like, um, "Well, uh, it's about well-being," or it's about what's best for the most amount of people, um, you know, possible. Well, who gets to decide these arbitrary standards? Right. 
who's the arbiter of that? Is it the person or the group that's the strongest? Is it the one who's in political power? Right. Uh, is it uh, the one, you know, does might make right? I mean, all of these things come into play when you just obliterate uh, an objective standard, an objective grounding for morality. And you simply say, well, we can all just, and it seems so nice and so pretty when you can just say, oh, well, we'll just all agree on the goal. Well, right. Uh, sure. Everybody can agree on the the rules of chess, but chess is not a a moral issue, right? That's well, sure. a moral issue, right? Right. And 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 if someone comes along and says, "Well, no, I I um, uh, in in my version of chess, the it's uh, the king can move as many spaces as he wants," and well, at that point, you appeal to the rules of like, no the United chess Federation or whoever sets these rules has said, these are the rules, right? Like, or, or what you would do is you would go to the instruction manual that came in your chess set. Yeah. Yeah. And, um, when we're dealing with morality, if someone says, well, what's, 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 uh, moral is what is best for the most amount of people. Number one, how do you define best? And number two, um, what do you say to someone who says, no, Morality is what's worst for the most amount of people. I hate people. So, I mean, like, are we going to really say that no one's ever thought that way? Like there aren't psychopaths who just hate humanity. Uh, Satan would say what's best for me is what's worst for the most amount of people. And that might sound absurd to us, but, and and I'm certainly not accusing every atheist of saying that or any atheist that I know of saying that. The question is, how do you defend against that kind of moral absurdity unless unless you have an objective standard? Because well, it's all just consensus. A little story real quick about this. So when, we were, when I was taking my philosophy religion class at Edinburgh University online, we were talking about the problem of evil. And there was a, a um, naturalist who is in the class. Um, I, won't, I won't say his name because he might – I don't want to put him on blast like that. But – he essentially said there is no such thing as evil. It's merely a construct uh, built around um, the desires and wants that we have as a species, as a, as, as a human. Um, I call something evil because it's not within the realm of my uh, preferences and or personal goals uh, in surviving and propagating uh, DNA. And my response in the chat was, bro, don't run for office. <laughs> but, but I want to thank Ethan for allowing us to, you know, run the moral argument, uh, on your channel. So, right, 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 right. No, that's good. Um, Lucas points out, he says, I don't know a single apologist, evidential or otherwise, who thinks anyone is neutral. Coming for you, Joel. He's coming for you, Joel. Amen. Then argue like it. (laughs) That's great, man. Be consistent. Because um, obviously, listen, I I don't think anyone's neutral. And um, I, I think, I mean, my personal belief is that, um, the wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against men who suppress the truth and unrighteousness. That's just me. I just came up with that just now. You know, that's just my, no, I got that from the Bible. That's, that's Romans one 18. No one is neutral claiming to be wise. They became fools. Uh, Their, their foolish hearts were darkened. And, um, and, and so uh, to 
Well, well leave it there. I mean, I actually, let's, I mean, it, it's your show, but whenever you can, I actually want to pull another passage up to, to chat with you about if that's possible. Okay. Okay. Put, put a pin in that because we got to, we got a pin in that. And then we've got to do, we've, pin gotta come, we've got to come back to the other thing about uh, pre-sub Judaism. Um, just making a note here. Okay. This is, this is good. This is what I, I was hoping for a free flowing, relaxed conversation. Every now and then we gang up on a, a, a skeptic. No, no, no. I didn't, you know, I'm kidding about that, but um, all right, let's see. Um, he preferred that. What's that? He preferred that. Who, who he did? Preferred, he preferred that we gang up on him by making the comment. Well, that you're saying he was asking for it. He was asking for it. Uh, Ethan. We do it in love, brother, friend. I can't call you. Obviously, love either. Ethan. He's platforming on his channel multiple times in Absolutely. debates and conversations. That's and, love. Uh, and still praying for you too, my friend. I want you to experience the eternal life that comes through Jesus Christ. All right. Um, can you please talk? This is from Gospel Ambassador. Can you please talk about the phenomena of self-deception of unbelievers? Oh my goodness. Um, this is this is an episode I've been avoiding doing because I didn't want to <laughs> I didn't want to do all the the research on it. Um, self-deception of of unbelievers. Um, well, look, when you I'll get this is my and okay, so Dean weigh in right after this. This is my quick and dirty explanation of it, okay? When you when you enter into your when when you're engaging, when your primary engagement with the world is sinful. That might sound harsh, but biblically speaking, every um, it's impossible for the mindset of the flesh, the mind that is set on the flesh to please God. You cannot, apart from a saving relationship with Jesus Christ, you cannot please God. So you're interacting with the world. Everything that you're doing at some level is sinful, tainted by sin. Doesn't mean it's as sinful as it could be, but it, at some level, we're all sinful. And you're, you're then confronted with all this evidence, Dean, all this evidence from the world about uh, God, God's exist. God's, I don't even like to say God's existence, but the fact that God is there, the reality of God, the only way you can go through life and stay sane, there's only two options that are available to you. One, suppress that truth because the, the alternative is absolutely terrifying. I'm going to have to stand before the God who made me, who is pure light, pure goodness. And I, you know, I was just thinking earlier today about my sin and just thanking the Lord for his mercy, because I am such a sinful man. And so step, uh, alternative one, deny God, suppress and and that leads to self-deception. It's like what Dean was saying earlier. You believe enough falsehood, you start to really, um, you repeat enough falsehood, you start to believe it yourself. Okay, and you have to suppress the truth. The other alternative is to repent and believe the gospel. Those are your only two options. All the religions and philosophies that are non-Christian are on one side. Biblical Christianity is on the other side. Those are the only two options, ultimately. Dean, do you agree, disagree? What do you think? I agree. Those are the only two options that are uh, that are on the table. Either it's um, uh, the only two options for the non-believer is to suppress and stay a non-believer and live as a non-believer, uh, and as Frank Turk would say, steal some things from mm-hmm. from God to make sense of life. Uh, or the other option is to 
to be a Christian. Yeah. Yeah, that's right. Um, okay. Uh, we're, we're getting a lot of comments here about on your point about uh, evaluating sin. One of the passages that I always go to, to kind of remind me of not just who I am, but who God is, uh, is Ezekiel 16 about the Lord's faithless bride. Um, you get halfway through that and you'll probably shut your Bible just because of, <laughs> of, of the, the graphic nature of that. But it just reminds me of two things. One, there was nothing desirable about Israel in the field wallowing in their own blood as a baby. And yeah. God came by and said, I said, live. Yeah. And so then they have this path of rebellion, but God redeems them. Amen. Amen. Check that out. That's that's your free daily Bible reference for your personal devotional by Dean, the Marine. Love it. Look at that. That's, that's uh, got legs. uh, When I was a pastor, we'd say that'll preach, man. That'll preach. Um, all right, so so Ethan then says, but what evidence would change my mind? Wouldn't you want to present that to me? Very brief, briefly, Ethan, you already have enough evidence. You have right now enough evidence. The fact that you are using language, which presupposes logic and uh, coherence and uniformity in nature, the, the fact that you are expecting a logical reply, the fact that you're expecting me not to lie to you uh, presupposes absolute morality, all the things that we've talked about. So you want evidence. The very fact that you're functioning in this world like a Christian, except you're denying Christ. That should be evidence enough. Look in your own heart and look in, um, look at the way that you interact with the world. And then look at God's word, the Bible, which I cite to you, which I know, you know, Dean is presenting that to you, uh, Lucas. I mean, you've got enough Christians in your life to know what the Bible teaches. Um, the evidence is all around you. It's been clearly seen in the things that have been made. So, like, you want evidence, but you, you, uh, you have it, you already have it. And, um, all right, Dean. Yeah, go ahead. It's a question about evidence. Well, it's, it's interesting. And, and this is something that I'm not only referencing towards Ethan, but the majority of the conversations that I've had with non-believers, I asked the question, you know, what evidence would it take for you to be mm. uh, a Christian and the answer that I normally get is, well, I don't know, but that's not good enough right. uh, or something, right, right. something to that effect. So how would, how would you know that that evidence would convince you if you don't already have a standard of evidence that would convince you? Yeah, that's man. That's good. How do you know if a dollar bill is uh, counterfeit or real unless you have a real one to compare it to? Yeah. Um, Gospel Ambassador asks this, and this is for you, Dean. Is there a better compilation of Christian evidences book than evidence that demands a, ber- a verdict? If yes, which one? Oh, man. Um, I would say evidence that demands a verdict, the updated edition by Sean and Josh McDowell. Um, that's a new, a newer version, uh, updated version of the book. But that mainly deals with things like the resurrection, Old Testament evidence, New Testament historical reliability evidence. If you want something more on the philosophical side of the house, I would definitely say uh, Philosophical Foundations um, for a Christian Worldview by J.P. Moreland and 
William Lane Craig, if you want something that's a little bit lighter and not as dense, I would say William Lane Craig's book On Guard is a very good starting point um, for anybody that that wants that compilation uh, of Christian uh, evidence. So there you go. Great. Thanks, Dean. All right. Uh, Lucas is saying, this is the last comment we can take for right now. Uh, just because someone has imperfect understanding doesn't mean they cannot understand. Fully agree with that, Lucas. One may have biases, but that doesn't imply they cannot reason from evidence. I fully agree with that as well. Um, that doesn't say anything about the suppression of truth that is being described in Romans 1. Um, the problem is not, and the problem is not evidence. Um, God's eternal power and divine nature, his invisible attributes have not been like just merely misunderstood. They've been clearly seen since the creation of the world being revealed in the things that have been made. So God's divine nature is, well, I would argue because God is triune, I would argue that that's his, his Trinity, his triune nature as well, that I don't think you can get around his triuneness. Um, if you're going to talk about God's nature, his eternal power, I mean, man, go out and look at a sunset over the city of Chicago from across Lake Michigan. Goodness. Talk about God's power. Go out and look at the Milky Way at night. Obviously, Lucas, I'm not talking to you. I'm, I'm saying, how does anybody look at this universe, man? We've got a rover on Mars right now. And you're going to deny the, the eternal power of God. It's, it's the only explanation. Is suppression so, of truth. So I have a quick, or is that the last comment? Go ahead. Okay. So let me, let me pose this as far as Romans chapter one goes. So there's this suppression of truth. We both agree on that. Yeah. And it also says that claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. Therefore God gave them up to the lust of their hearts to impurity, to dishonoring their bodies among themselves because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie. Mm -hmm. So, so here's, here's my question. Could it be that this suppression of truth is a matter of, of a, is, is the result from the exchange that they made between the truth about God at least in this section in Romans to the pagan practices. And so it's not so much that um, they suppress the truth. Uh, it's not so much that they suppress the truth in the way that evidence won't work, but that from an evidential standpoint, if I can, if I can provide evidence to, to show them that they, have made the wrong exchange and they mm. need to go back to the exchange and, you know, go back to God, then that will unravel their suppression. Um, I, I like that. But again, I think we're going to have to get back to a, you know, what approach we use to show them that they've made the wrong exchange. Right. And, and, and how do, how do we guide them back? I think we'd probably both guide them back in a similar way, you know, pre proclaim the gospel and invite them to receive Jesus as savior and Lord. Um, that's just, I want, we want to put that out there. Dean and I are very much on the same team here. Um, but you know, um, you, you bring up something that I wanted to mention. So, all right. Um, 
we show them that they've made the wrong exchange. Okay, now here's here's how I want to show them that. Given what is necessary for evidence, the preconditions we talked about earlier, right? The Christian worldview has those preconditions contained within it: logic, uh, reliability of truth-seeking faculties, and human reasoning. Um, a, a cosmos that actually delivers true data to us that's intelligible all those different preconditions okay um even the you know the logic laws of logical inference like if a then b if b then c a therefore c right that's that's sort of the evidential line of reasoning that we want to use and you know that, that we want to point people to so the atheist does not have those conditions within his worldview there's nothing within atheism any kind of materialism that can effectively ground even to i would say to the even the first degree, anything like those conditions, immaterial laws. What is that in a materialist universe? You know what I mean? Like, right. um, and, and you and I, we can get back to whether or not other forms of theism can do that, but atheism and materialism certainly can't. Would you agree with I, that? I would agree with that, that. Okay. That, yeah. Okay. So then therefore, if they want to appeal to evidence in any way, shape or form, they have no choice, but to tacitly or implicitly enter into our worldview, sneakily, even without necessarily knowing that they're doing it. Right. They might not even be aware that they're doing it, but they have to come into our worldview. And you mentioned Frank Turek earlier, and there's plenty of preceptors who talk about stealing from God, borrowing from God, borrowing from the Christian worldview. Jeff Durbin talks about it a lot. Um, they have to do that. But here's the thing. Once you've entered into the Christian worldview, it's go big or go home. It's all or nothing. Here's why. Because now, and I, I've been doing a lot of thinking about this. I want to tell you about this. I don't know. I haven't fully articulated this publicly yet. The, the Well, no, I haven't. Uh, I think I have said something similar to it, but here's what I want to fully flesh it out very quickly. The, the Christian worldview is a complete set. You cannot have one of the tenets without all the tenets. Here's why. Because the way God brilliantly laid it out, he did not do it like Joseph Smith. He did not do it like uh, uh, Muhammad. He did not do it like Buddha. It is not the Bible is not a book of aphorisms and Proverbs, although there is a book of Proverbs in it. It's all revealed narratively. So all the principles, the, the, the logos, Jesus being the logos, is revealed at the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ according to John, which is a story. So the story from Genesis to Malachi all points forward to the coming of the Messiah. And, and in there, you have all of these principles that are revealed as part of the story. So we could open up Ezekiel and we could get principles, but we have to extract the principles from the story. So um, it's all a cohesive whole. It's a cohesive uh, worldview with Jesus at the nucleus of it. And the New Testament, of course, all centers around Jesus. That's obvious. But there's no way to pull out the principles that... Um, the the you know the, for example the the preconditions that make the world intelligible and that make evidence a meaningful thing without taking the whole enchilada along with it right so once you've begun to steal from Christianity you have to to be consistent you are tacitly admitting that Jesus is Lord because the whole thing all comes together you can't steal from Moses without Moses is pointing towards the prophet that would arise just like him you can't steal from um, Isaiah without taking Isaiah 53. 
which is it has been called the you know the the fifth gospel because it talks so much about Jesus. You can't steal from David without all the prophecies of David that are fulfilled in Christ. The whole thing comes as a set. James says, if you break one law, you're guilty of breaking them all. It all comes together. So once the atheist has begun to steal from Christianity, you can point out and say, no, no, wait a minute. No stealing from my worldview unless you're ready to admit Jesus is Lord. And if you're ready, I'll tell you how to become a Christian right here, right now. And well, there's some water out back. Why shouldn't you be baptized? <laughs> right. <laughs> right. So, so you've, so I, I believe that we can charge the skeptic with, with essentially stealing from the worldview. My question then is what, what do you do with the nitty gritty questions that the atheist is going to ask like, okay, so you're telling me um, that the preconditions for intelligibility are these following things. And it's just the Christian worldview that provides these things. And then the atheist is going to say, well, why is that? And you're going to mention the triune God, right? But then they're going to ask the question, well, how do you know that that's true? Okay. How do you know that that's true? Yeah. Well, I'm, you've, you've probably heard the presuppositional answer to that before, but it's it's due to the impossibility of the contrary. You have to affirm it in order to deny it. So, um, first of all, what we're doing when we're talking with atheists, according to the presuppositional approach, is we're not meeting them on neutral territory and saying, here's the evidence, which one looks correct based on the evidence. What we're doing first is we're going into the biblical worldview and saying, is it coherent? Is there anything logically wrong about believing this? And the, the great thing is, based in the biblical, based upon the presuppositions of the biblical worldview, any supposed contradiction or error in scripture has an explanation because scripture is God's word in that worldview. God doesn't lie. So within the biblical worldview, unless it's logically impossible that God is capable, God as defined in the Bible, is capable of creating and revealing a coherent worldview, then there is a defeater for any possible contradiction. So the biblical worldview is coherent, it's it's uh, cogent, it's um, cohesive, everything else you need it to be, and its principles give rise to these preconditions. So within the biblical worldview, you can use logic and believe in logic, no problem. But I guess the question would be, the, what, what I was getting at is, you're saying you have to presuppose these things. The atheist says, well, how do you, I mean, I guess my question is, I mean, how did how did Joel mm-hmm. come to understand that Christianity is true? Yeah, my parents taught me. <laughs> okay. Yeah. So, okay. So, so I guess my question, I guess my question comes back to, if if you're telling the skeptic, um, you know, there's no logical, you know. What, what what was the phrase that's used? There's no um I know that it's true because there's no logical oh, the impossibility um, of the contrary? The impossibility of the contrary. Okay. Well, how do you know that that's true? Ah, okay. Because if you deny, if you uh, well, um remember you're dealing with a a a person who has a worldview, right? There's no neutrality. Right. So the atheist is is free to make the case that his atheistic presuppositions give rise to logic or uh, account for logic is what we oftentimes say. Um, that is going to be an exercise in futility because l- unless, the, here's the thing, how is the atheist defining logic? 
is the atheist defining logic as something material? Like, how is a law material? I mean, even even if they say, well, it's a category or it's a property or something like that. Well, what is a category? That's not, you can't touch a category. Larry always says, you know, give me a bucket of the number seven or give me a bucket of logic. Um, it's not a physical thing. And yet if I'm a physicalist or a materialist, there's nothing in my concept of the universe that can be a law of logic. There's certainly nothing that can be unchanging. Law, logic is unchanging. There's certainly nothing that can be, you know, uh, timeless or um, universally knowable because nothing in matter is 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 knowable everywhere, right? So so, um, so if you so th- so what you can do is you can show within atheism. And, and it's going to be person relative. Ethan's atheism is going to be different than Travis Pangburn's atheism is going to be different than uh, Neil deGrasse Tyson's atheism, Richard Dawk. Every, you know, we're all people. We're individuals. Um, so we got to be careful not to, pre- not, not to presume too much. Um, but, but what you can show them is by denying God, you've cut your feet right out from under you. You now have no way of accounting for, um, the, the very logic that you want to appeal to, the very evidence you want to appeal to, the very morality you want to appeal to. And you can let them make that case. Um, but, uh, but you know, uh, if you want to just be biblical, you can say the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Wisdom is possible. Therefore, God exists. All right. I've asked you a couple of questions. You can fire back some at me if you want to. Okay. So, so um, let's see. Um when you are pre- presenting evidence, we've got six minutes, by the way, when you're presenting evidence, are you, what, what do you believe is the condition of the unbeliever? Do you, are they, do they just have a flawed reasoning or are they at some level, do you believe that they are, in other words, do you, let me ask you this. Do you believe they have enough evidence already to believe that God exists? Uh, with regards to natural theology, I do. Yeah. So, uh, so when, when Romans one talks about um, the invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly perceived since the creation of the world. I think that natural theology uh, provides a basis for all people for all time in every place to know God. And so do uh, they know God? Do they know God? I believe that they do. I believe that they do know God. I think that it comes back to that exchange that they've made. Right. Right. And so in that exchange, so, so I look at the unbeliever similarly to way that I, I look at the way that Paul um, looks at the Athenians in Acts 17. Right. Um okay. So we, we see there in Acts 17, um, it doesn't seem to me, unless I've missed it, I don't see Paul addressing the, the crowd in Acts chapter 17 with any Old Testament verses, with any prophecies, um, with anything um, relative to the prophetic nature of who Jesus is. I see... There, Paul understands that he's dealing with a group of people that just don't even care mm-hmm. uh, about Hebrew Old Testament scriptures. And so 
what does he do? I mean, he says, I see that you're very religious mm-hmm. in every way. And so maybe that's the the common thread between them and Paul. I see that you're very religious, but it's a completely different worldview. Right. And from there, he argues from now, now would Paul say the same guy that wrote Romans one is the same guy speaking in Acts 17. Right. Mm-hmm. So, so he's saying, I'm preaching to you. Um, I'm going to preach to you this God that you say that you don't know. Yeah. So, so somewhere in the middle, you have to square what Paul says in Romans one with what he says in Acts 17. Yeah. So, so what, so how do I square that? I square that by saying, of course, these people know who God is mm-hmm. um, because his divine attributes, his eternal power uh, have, have been revealed. But because of the situation they find themselves in, in the sense that they are, they have believed something to the point where they believe that it's true. They've made that exchange. Paul is now going to go into the marketplace, pun intended, because in Acts 17, oh, yeah, he reasons right. in the marketplace. Very nice. He's going to go into the marketplace in the world of ideas, and he's going to say, even from where you are, even from the poets that you ascribe to, guess what they attest to? They attest to God. And he does it without using any Old Testament passages. He but do you see that as being more in line with precept or evidentialism? I, I see that more in line with evidentialism. Really? Dealing with a group of people that are are not um, on the same plane. So, so they're not on the same plane as Paul. He has to provide this evidence for them to get them to the point where then he can make the argument of, uh, you know, we can be, we can be assured of the following things because of what God is, that God is going to judge the world in rightness, righteousness because of uh, Jesus, whom he's raised from the grave, essentially is what Paul says. Okay. Um, I definitely see the, the appeal there to the resurrection, which evidentialism really, you know, hones in on that, uh, the, the, the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. I see Acts 17 as a very presuppositional passage. Elaborate, my friend. All right. So here you've got Paul telling them, look, I, I, I'll give you the, the, the long and short of it. I'll try to do it quickly because we're almost out of time. The, look, you Athenians, you have this worldview where you're worshiping all these little gods in these little shrines and little temples, but your own philosophers, your own prophets talking about your own gods, you know, Jove or whoever say that God cannot be, um, God cannot be confined to, um, to a little temple being, for example, verse 28 of Acts 17, for, for in him, we live and move and exist as even some of your own poets have said, quote, for we are also his offspring and quote, being God's offspring. Then we shouldn't think that the divine nature is like gold or silver or stone an image fashioned by human art and imagination. In other words, Hey, you Athenians, look at the inconsistency here. Now you claim to follow the poet that says we are his offspring, but is your dad made of gold? Is your forefather made of silver or stone? Are you kidding me? Um, look at the inconsistency in your worldview here. Now, let's look at the Christian worldview. Uh, having overlooked the time of ig- ignorance, God now commands all people everywhere to repent. Uh, even, uh, okay, going uh, here, um, up in verse 23. 
Therefore, what you worship in ignorance, this I proclaim to you. The God who made the world and everything in it, he is Lord of heaven and earth and does not live in shrines made by made by hands. Neither is he served by human hands as though he needed anything since he himself gives life and breath to all things. What he's doing, what, what Paul is doing here is he's addressing the things that they already claim to believe. Gods are transcendent. Gods can't be confined to stone or um, uh, gold or silver or anything like that. And and he's showing them the inconsistency in their worldview because here they've got all these gods made of those materials. Then what he's doing is he, he's saying, look, here's a more coherent way. Here's a truer way. Uh, here's Here's a more consistent worldview. God, which you already know, can't be confined to your little idols, made us. He has made every nationality to live over the whole earth, verse 26, and determine their appointed times and the boundaries of where they live. In other words, you're, you know that God is sovereign, but you're trying to be sovereign over God. Here's a more consistent way. God is sovereign. And here's the conclusion of that worldview. Verse 30, therefore, having overlooked the times of ignorance, God now commands all people everywhere to repent. In other words, what he's uh, because he has set a day when he's going to judge the world in righteousness by the man he has appointed. He has provided proof of this to everyone by by raising him from the dead. Yes, which I don't think is evidentialism. Here's why. Because he is presenting the theological implications of it along with the um, the the historical event. And he's not saying, here's how we know Jesus rose from the dead, which this is one of my beefs with evidentialism is it says, here's all the evidence to prove that Jesus rose from the dead. What Paul is, and, and to which the unbeliever might just say, huh, wow, crazy, uh, call Ripley's believe it or not, I guess people can rise from the dead. What Paul is saying is, um, what Paul is saying is, look, Jesus rose from the dead. I'm telling you that, which is a tenet of my Christianity. Here's the implications of that. In other words, it's all one big worldview. And so if you're going to. So then why didn't he appeal to Jeremiah 31, 31? Why didn't he appeal to Isaiah 53? Why didn't he appeal to the presuppositions of, or the implications of, uh, of, of prophecy? I mean, because that's, if I asked, if I asked uh, a presuppositionalist, um, you know, uh, or, or at least some presuppositionalists, how do you know that God exists? They say, well, I opened up my Bible and God revealed it to me. Well, how do you know that that's true? Well, because God revealed it to me. Uh, yeah. If you're asking me personally, Dean, how do I know God is real? And how do I know Jesus is Lord? The whole, it's the te- inner testimony of the Holy Spirit. I mean, like, like, how did I come to faith in Jesus Christ? Only the Lord can do that. I, I didn't, I'm not that smart where like I figured it out on my own. I mean, I would have been suppressing the truth along with everyone else. You get what I'm saying? No, I see what you're saying. Um, I, I guess my point with, with the text in Acts chapter 17 is how, how do you maintain the, uh, I guess the question that I'm asking would be, uh, well, I guess it would be there would be no implication for of the lack of use of Old Testament scriptures. Yeah, I don't think I, um, you don't have to go to like fulfilled prophecy uh, to be a presuppositionalist. Um, right. I, I I'm perfectly fine with the presuppositional argument that that does that. But even if you look at like the the most um, prominent or fundamental presupp 
argument, which is the uh, with tag, you know, the transcend- transcendental argument for God. What it says is, um, uh, essentially, it's God, therefore logic, or God, therefore the preconditions of intelligibility. Or, you know what I'm saying? Right. It's 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 not. Here's a bunch of fulfilled prophecy. Um, I'm I'm more than happy to to make those arguments, but like, it doesn't. It, they're not necess- You don't have to appeal to because, again, like you said or implied, the Athenians didn't have the Old Testament. What Paul was doing is he was showing them their own the inconsistency of their own worldview, and then showing them how the biblical worldview, the biblical Christian worldview in this case, um, is actually actually makes sense out of the reality that they experience. You're not saying that showing the inconsistency with a worldview equals presuppositionalism, are you? I'm saying that it is one step of a two or three step presuppositional process. But but you'd be willing to grant that that could also be a one to two step process within evidentialism as well, right? Um, it again, it depends on your operating system. Um, I'm <laughs> I'm I'm starting I'm starting from as a presuppositionalist. I'm starting from an acknowledgement right out the gate that when it comes to biblical truth, I could not be wrong about it. I. I am not standing alongside the atheism. I convince you that you're wrong about Christianity. Not one thing. Does and that doesn't bother you? No, that's a strength of Christianity. Right. Well, I believe that Christianity is true, but I don't. I wouldn't hold that. Um, there's nothing that could convince me that Christianity is not true. So, for instance, if someone could show me that Jesus didn't rise from the grave. That would convince me that Christianity is not true. Whereas you're saying, uh, even if someone made that argument, that wouldn't convince you that Christianity is not true. No, of course not. Absolutely not. And that's not because I'm as stubborn and hard-headed. It's because if Jesus didn't rise from the, the grave, then the whole biblical worldview is void. And at that point, I now have no basis for believing in anything. I have a radical defeater for all my beliefs. It's not like there's all these other great foundations for epistemology and, and uh, knowledge, right? So it's so if you lose biblical Christianity, it's not like there's some other worldview out there that's just waiting, you know, with open arms. And, oh, now at least I have this other coherent view. You lose everything. And I don't just mean in Christianity. I mean in all of human experience. You have a radical defeater for every possible belief, including your belief that Jesus didn't rise from the dead. Okay. So real quick, um, I know we're I know we're a little bit we are time. Is there any way we could get to a couple of comments and then roll out? Yeah, let's or do it. you okay. go. It's your show. Uh, I can do eight more minutes. Okay, let's do some comments and then I I definitely got to go, or else my uh, head will be put on a silver platter, much like John the Baptist. Yeah, we don't want that. Okay, Gospel Ambassador says for you, Dean, you can check out this book, Refuting Allah, Proving Jesus, Christian Truth and Presuppositions, Critique Islam. And that's by Mike Robinson. We'll get it. All right. Uh, Larry says, Dat, hashtag Dat Presup, what up? Exposes a hole in a worldview, a quote, God-sized end quote hole. There is only one thing that can fill that void once exposed. I think that lays the foundation for the acceptance and lead to the relationship that will fill the void. Agreed. All right. Uh, yeah. Ethan says, OMG, hmm, 
Hmm. OMG. Hmm. This needs to end. <laughs> LOL. I know what LOL stands for. What does OMG stand for, Ethan? Hmm. Uh, but I want to finish this. Okay, this needs to end. I have to go, but I want to finish this. All right. Be patient, my friend. Be patient. Um, all right. Non-serious question from Ethan. I stopped saying Jesus Christ as uh, presumably as a curse word because it would offend my ex-wife. I now use Jesus, G-E-E-Z-U-S. Is that acceptable or still offensive? Uh, Ethan, if I used your name as a curse word, but I spelled it uh, E-E-E-T-H-I-N and I said, Ethan, every time something bad happened, would that be offensive to you? You tell me. Larry says offensive. <laughs> uh, what do you, what do you I love think? the fact that Larry's a man of many words. Right? Offensive. <laughs> um, uh, Ethan says, I didn't mean OMG to be offensive. No, I, I, I was pointing out that by saying OMG, you're calling God yours. You're saying, oh my God. Uh, so I thought that was an interesting word choice. He says it's habit. I understand. Um, Someday you're going to have to give an account for every idle word that you speak, Ethan. I want you to repent and trust in Jesus before that day comes, please. And I can help you with evidence. Absolutely. And and so can I. I just think you already have enough. But yes. Uh, Larry said, I learned brevity from Dean. <laughs> <laughs> it's true because when we have our group chats, I'm usually just like, word, yeah, okay. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Uh, Ethan says, no, it wouldn't offend him because he's not easily offended, but point taken, LOL. Sure. I don't think I'm easily offended either, but maybe I am. But, uh, there's also the metaphysical difference, the, the ontological difference between the Lord God almighty and, you know, Ethan or Joel or Dean, like we're not God. Um, but again, I would, I, I, I urge you, Ethan, you someday you are going to have to give you are going to have to give an account to the Lord. Okay. So now Ethan says this, been waiting months on your evidence, Dean. Dean, have you given well, Ethan well, evidence? First, first, Ethan needs to tell me what evidence would convince him that Christianity is true. And then I'll provide it. Right. And he, and as long as he keeps saying, I'm not sure, then right. how does he know what evidence would or wouldn't convince him? Right. Right. Okay. Well, so just you give go. me your standard, Ethan, and then I'll provide it. Yeah, that's good. Uh, Gospel Ambassador says, the lesson we have learned today is, drumroll please, Christianity or absurdity. Dean, do you agree with that? That I, that, I, that resonates deeply within my presuppositional soul, but what about you? Right. No, I, I think that as uh, William Lane Craig would, would affirm, a fellow- uh, we, don't, we, don't, uh, we don't mention uh, the Craig here. No, I'm kidding. I'm kidding. No, that's- Perfectly okay. I'm going to mention, you can edit it out later. Fair enough. Beep. <laughs> uh, is that uh, life uh, without God leads to absurdity. Amen. All right. Ethan says, something testable that I can investigate. So, okay. Yeah. <laughs> All right. All right. So, so here's what I'll say. Let's, let's as they say, let's put a, a, a pin in that. <laughs> I see what, <laughs> I see what uh, um, Lucas has said, and maybe we should send our wives on vacation with our kids on vacation to do, do an all day live stream. Yeah. Maybe Lucas says thing. I don't know, but I do think we, we should do a, a, a round two of this cause there's yeah. still some more things that I want to press. But um, just from my 
vantage point. I'm so used to being in discussions where I am literally uh, on the edge of my seat, not necessarily uh, on the edge of my seat, trying to think of rebuttals to what's being said. And so it's mm-hmm. been a nice uh, ride, so to speak, to just sit, have a conversation, chat, go back and forth, press each other a little bit on why we believe what we believe. And I just want to say thank you for this, uh, for this opportunity, Joel. It's been amazing. It, it has been my pleasure. Believe me. Um, I appreciate you, brother. I do appreciate the work you're doing because, um, Hey, like I said, as a Christian, I believe in evidence. I love evidence and I want to see more evidentialists out there strengthening the faith of believers. And, um, and look, do I say that no one can ever get converted through the use of evidence? Obviously, I think C.S. Lewis was a Christian. I think, uh, you know what I'm saying? I think, um, what's his name? Strobel and uh, Case for Faith. No, um, come on, help me out. Uh, Willow- Case for Faith. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And and who else? Um, Jay Warner Wallace. Would thank be you. One. I had him on my show, Jay Warner Wallace. Uh, no, I, obviously they're Christians. Uh, and so, yeah, can God use evidence? Of course. It just, the question is just logically prior. Prior. All right. Anyway, blah, blah, blah. Let's, let's move on. Um, listen, thank you to everyone who watched, who participated. My guest today has been Dean Meadows. Again, he's the co-founder and managing director. Yes. Executive director. But Executive I'll director. I'm, I'm the assistant to the assistant of the general manager. Of the, of the regional well, general. They say in the yeah. office. Very good. Um, of the Daily Apologist. And uh, I highly recommend you go check out that website. Um and you know what? Uh, check out some of Dean's debates. He debated someone that I debated, Kenneth, uh, Ken, um, uh, Kenneth, Ken, Leonard. Kenneth Leonard. Thank you. Who that debate is no longer online um, for reasons that are uh, pr- proprietary due to the channel it was hosted on. But um, you can uh, check out Dean's debate with with Ken and and just get as much content from Dean as he can, because he's got a, a, a reasonable winsomeness about him. And, um, and uh, you know, we don't have to agree on apologetical approach to call each other brother, brother in Christ, and to really just appreciate the work we're doing. So this, um, this has been a really enriching episode. I certainly hope that this has been helpful to you. I know it's been helpful for me. And I want to encourage you to reach out to the Think Institute and Check out the work that we're doing by going to thethink.institute. You can get all of our content um, from that website. And um, here we go, thethink.institute. You can get all of our shows from the Think Institute network by going to tinyurl slash tinyurl.com slash think network or by going to thethink.institute slash podcast. And um if my brain sounds a little fried, it's because it is. I was hanging on by a thread before we got started, and now the thread has only gotten thinner. Um, if you want to partner with the Think Institute and the Sedicase family, i.e. my family, we are support-raising missionaries through an organization called Crew. You can do that by going to give.crew.org slash 101-8841. I believe Dean is also uh, raising support. You can go to the Daily Apologist uh, to partner with him. And... Um, and uh, I'm partnering with the good work that they're doing. Real quick, um, what channel was your debate with Kenneth Leonard on? I was on Ethan's channel, Your Friendly Neighborhood Atheist. Yeah. Um, and uh, and let's see. Uh, if you have any inquiries, you can send them to thethink.institute at gmail.com. Please stop reaching out on Facebook Messenger. I, I, I will not respond to you if you reach out on Facebook Messenger. 
email me. That way I have everything all in a nice list and I can respond that way. Um, also, if you're interested in a um, Hammer and Anvil cohort, where if you want to get some personalized training in the biblical worldview, evangelism, apologetics, shoot me an email or contact me through the website, thethink.institute. And I'll be happy to, to um, provide that training for you. Dean also provides individualized training. And, and so um, I guess whoever's presentation you liked better, just uh, sign up or sign up for both, you know, get, get training in both firsthand. I would have no problem with that. Um, so I think that's about all of our, uh, oh, one more thing. Please, if you haven't done so yet, subscribe to our YouTube channel, youtube.com slash Think Institute. We are at 775 subscribers. We're trying to get to 1,000, and um, I need your help to do that. If you're listening on Apple Podcasts, please give us an honest five-star rating and review on Apple Podcasts. That also helps get the word out, gets us on the charts. Every now and then we chart, we hit the charts on various different countries, um, philosophy charts and things like that. And... Um, one more question. Fine. Gospel Ambassador says, me, A-B-Y, creating a, oh, maybe, creating a Discord server is a good idea. Okay, let me put out a call. If somebody knows about Discord and how to do that, please contact me at thethink.institute at gmail.com. I don't know anything about Discord. I understand it's the next big thing. I understand that it's basically censorship-free and a good way to um, to reach thousands of people. I am all about that. I'm more than happy to do that, but um, I don't know how to do it. So, uh, so let me know. Again, remember, this is not goodbye. This has just been a little pit stop along the way of your spiritual journey. That's about all we have for you today. So until next time, I hope it made you think.